0: Well the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave from the dead is the is the cornerstone of the gospel itself. I mean without the resurrection of Christ we are a people as Paul said to be pitied in 1 Corinthians 15. Michael Green an apologist said that Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. He said, without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. Christianity, he said, stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. It's very very well said. John Broadus, speaking over a century ago, said of the resurrection, he said it was the signed manual of the deity. It was the seal of the sovereign of the universe affixed to his claim. It declared him to be all that he had ever professed to be. He said the great fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is the central fact of the evidence of Christianity. Well said. It is why we're here this morning. In fact, Paul said if Christ is not raised then our preaching is in vain. He furthermore said, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. I mean, Paul could not have used stronger language. He basically said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all of all men the most pitiable." And yet, the resurrection of Christ has been under persistent attacks since the days of the apostles, since the day of the resurrection itself. Judaism swears that it never happened. The Jehovah Witnesses suggest that Jesus' physical body was destroyed. In fact, they actually say in their writings that it dissolved into gases, is what they say. There are liberals amongst us who have created something that they call the Jesus Seminar. And it is attended by those who express faith in Christ, but it must be the most liberal uh, group that meets because one of the co-founders is named John Dominic Crossan. He took dead aim at the resurrection of Christ. Here's what Time Magazine reported that Crossan said. He said, quote, the tales of entombment and resurrection were latter-day wishful thinking. He said, instead, Jesus' corpse went the way of all abandoned criminals' bodies. It was probably barely covered with dirt, vulnerable to the wild dogs that roamed the wasteland of the execution grounds. And so there are people who claim to have some kind of spiritual experience But deny this truth. I want you to open your Bible this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, the whole of 1 Corinthians 15 is given to the resurrection. But it doesn't take a liberal group of people to deny the resurrection. I want you to point your eyes to 1 Corinthians 15, 12 where it says there, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, you'll note that Paul said, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so there were people in this day, probably oh, 20 years after the resurrection, who were doubting that it happened. And whether they were doubting the entire aspect of the resurrection, there are a number of people that say it's not really so much the physical body that was raised, It's the story that's contained in it that we too, in metaphorical language, rise in the newness of life. But Paul was on to something there at the church at Corinth. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And so the scripture anticipates these attacks. And what the scripture gives to us in 3D color is it it defends for us and details the defense of the resurrection of Christ. If you took time in the greater New Testament, you would find that there are 17 different appearances just to individuals, some of those in a group, in all of the New Testament. There are statements like this in Matthew twenty-eight seventeen: They saw Him and they worshipped Him. We know that. He was raised from the dead. They saw Him. In Luke 24, it says that on those disciples on the road to Emmaus, that their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. He rose from the dead. Luke would say in the book of Acts, in Acts 1-3, that He presented Himself alive by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So it wasn't this that He rose for a moment. He appeared alive with them speaking to them about the kingdom of god for 40 days so beloved the evidence for the physical bodily resurrection far from being wishful thinking the resurrection of jesus christ from the grave is the defining moment of our salvation now we might ask the question this morning what are the grounds for believing the resurrection and i'd like to focus our attention On 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Okay? Let me read that for you, and then we'll move through that exposition. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... Now what I want to do with our time this morning is I want us to see three irrefutable testimonies that demonstrate the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as a result of that resurrection, it will verify our resurrection from the dead. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But let's look at these three irrefutable testimonies that demonstrate the validity of the resurrection. First is the testimony of Scriptures. The first testimony is the Scriptures. Cast your eye down on verse 3. Paul says there, that I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Now, he says there in his own testimony to these Corinthians and by the Spirit of God to us, he said, I delivered to you of first importance of what I also received. In other words, Paul is the exchange of truth, if you will. He is giving to you, he gave to the church at Corinth, Corinth, and he's giving something to us, what he received. And what he received was divine revelation. In fact, look over just a couple books over in Galatians. In Galatians chapter one twelve, Again, he is receiving this from Jesus Christ here in his work to the church at Galatia. In chapter 1 and verse 11, for he said, For I would know, have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is He said, is not man's gospel. Watch this. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he received that word that he's about to give from Jesus Christ. He received direct revelation. I think sometimes we think that when Paul was saved, he immediately went out and began to preach, and I suppose as you trace that record down in Acts, that's exactly what happened. He went out fairly quickly and began to preach. But when you begin to add the book of Galatians together, Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 2, we believe that Paul was receiving direct revelation from Jesus Christ anywhere from 14 to 17 years. So that by the time you get to his missionary journeys, He had initially started to preach, but then he had taken a little time away here to receive direct revelation from Christ Himself. So look at it again. He says, I delivered to you. He says, as of first importance, what I also received, and here's this first importance, that Christ died for our sins, and then you'll note it was according to the Scripture, and what He found in the Scripture, look at verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Two different times, Paul repeats that phrase according to the scriptures. He is emphasizing to the church there and to us this morning that the resurrection of Christ and this gospel that he received is not new. He received it from God through a revelation of Christ and what he received was the death the burial, and the resurrection. Now, when he links it there to the scriptures, he's talking both Old Testament and New Testament scripture. In other words, he's saying the scriptures tell you about the resurrection. They tell you about his death. They tell you about his burial. They tell you about his rising on the third day. We studied that together in the book of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 1. We studied about his death. Friday night in Isaiah chapter 53, you look at Psalm 16, you look at Psalm 22, the Old Testament and the prophets and the scriptures were filled with that news. As you come to the New Testament, you find that news as well. You remember, I think it's coming up on the screen in Luke 24 when Jesus was talking to those Two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And He said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the... Interesting. That the prophets have spoken. In other words, Christ Himself takes them back to the prophets. He says, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And then I love this phrase. And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, He interpreted to them in all of the Scripture... The things concerning himself. What a statement. I would have loved to have been one of those disciples. Would you have not? Remember these are the guys that said. Were our hearts not burning. You know inside of us. When he was telling us about those scriptures. But there you have it. It says there to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and the prophets. He basically showed them his person in the Old Testament. Now, when you come again to the life of Christ in the book of Matthew, Jesus kept telling them that. He said from that time forward in Matthew 16, 21, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and that he must be killed and then rise again on the third day. Christ kept telling his disciples that. Jesus said in Matthew 17, 9, He commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He kept prophetically telling them what was going to happen. In chapter 17, verse 22 and 23, Jesus said the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him and He will be raised on the third day. There are so many scriptures, both in the Old and in the New, that foretold what would Jesus would do. So over and over again, either directly or indirectly, literally, or in figures of speech, both the Old Testament and the New Testament foretold Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, this is the testimony of the scriptures, beloved. It's a testimony. It's a witness to his resurrection from the dead. Remember at the end of the book of Acts when Paul was standing before King Agrippa. In fact, here was his testimony in Acts 26. I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and what Moses said was going to take place that Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, He should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So here's the first irrefutable testimony. It's the Scripture. It's both the New Testament, it's the Old Testament, it's Moses and all of the prophets that told of this, and that's what Paul is delivering. But there's a second testimony here in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the eyewitness testimony. The eyewitness testimony. Look again when you see that in verse 5. It just says there, he appeared to Cephas, okay? Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to 500 brothers or brothers at one time. Verse 7, he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Here in this eyewitness testimony account, there are six different appearances that are cited. So you have the testimony of Scripture, and now you have the testimony of eyewitnesses, okay? Let me walk through those just briefly. Number one, in his first appearance, you could see it in verse 5, it says that he appeared to Cephas. We know that that is the name for Peter, Peter, beloved, was a prime witness to the resurrected Christ. He appeared to Peter. Now, you know, we we know that there were 12, and then after Judas, there were 11. But it's interesting here that Paul points out that he appeared to Peter. And I think what it is, is just a, it's God's grace. Because nobody had blundered more than Peter. Nobody had tripped more than Peter. I mean, take yourself back just a few days before the resurrection. In Luke 22, when there's a fire out in the courtyard, and there is Peter in the courtyard warming himself. And in Luke 22, it says that the light from the fire begin to show his visage, if you will. And one of the women who were standing in that courtyard because of the light coming off that fire recognized and said, you're with him. And of course, Peter denied it. Then she came again to him and said, but I saw you with him. And he denied it again. And then he came again, did she not a third time? And he said, man, I don't even know who you're talking about. And then it says there that the cock, what? It crowed. But the most eerie thing in all of Luke 22 is only Luke gives us this account. Right at that moment, right at that denial, right at that point, it said that Jesus looked over from where he had been mocked and spit and treated and he met the eyes of Peter. He looked at Peter. And of course, he went out and he wept bitterly and there he was, a broken man, the one who said, though all deny you, I will never deny you. Beloved, I think it's God's special grace in Christ that he appeared to Peter. I'm so glad he did because I know that myself, like Peter, I fall and I stumble and I struggle and I just think he revealed himself to Peter not because he was the greatest, not because of any other reason, but probably because he needed it the most. Peter needed to be restored and Jesus Christ appeared to him. In fact, it says this in Luke 24-34 that the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. And so here is the testimony in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas. In Luke 24-34, it says that the Lord has risen and that he appeared to Peter himself. What's fascinating for me Scott mentioned it earlier this morning. Look over to the book of Acts just for a second. Let me take you to the preaching of Peter. To the preaching of Peter. And again, this is an eyewitness account. But in Acts chapter 2, he is preaching, is he not, on the day of Pentecost. And in 2.29, here is Peter's words. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, And of all, and he says, and of that, we are all, what? Witnesses. I mean, this man went from being completely discouraged to a dynamo preacher in the New Testament church to the one who would become the very mouthpiece of God to the one who would preach at Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved. I'm convinced it was the resurrection that transformed him. It was his eyewitness to the person of Christ that turned Peter into a bold preacher of the Spirit of God. Look over at just the next chapter in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 in verse 14. And again, Peter is preaching again there. And he tells the Jewish people in 3.14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And now this, to this we are, what? Witnesses. We are witnesses of that. In other words, he's giving you, beloved, an witness testimony of his sight of the risen Savior. In fact, look over at chapter 4. It says there, at the end of chapter 3, if you see verse 26, God, having raised up his servants, he's still preaching on the resurrection, he says, sent to him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the, what? The resurrection of the dead. This, as Scott mentioned this morning, was the apostolic prophetic testimony of what they themselves witnessed, and in this account, Peter himself. In fact, look over at chapter 4 in verse 33. He says there that the great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. In verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. But glance down, if you will, and look over now to chapter 10. Would you look over at that, to Acts chapter 10? He's continuing to preach is Peter and Cornelius in this account. In fact, you can see in chapter 10, in verse 34, Peter was the one who opened his mouth, and then glance at 1039. We are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, and God raised him up on the third day and made him appear not to all people, but to those of us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. There it is again. They ate, drank with Him. You say, why does it mention that they ate and drank with Him? Because you don't eat and drink with a ghost. You don't, you don't eat and drink with just a, a spirit. He came back from the dead and He is flesh and blood Did not Peter say in his own epistle that you were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead? So here's that first eyewitness account. It's Peter. He's alive and he witnessed that. Secondly, look at the second eyewitness testimony. It says there in verse 5, he appeared to Cephas. Then it says that he appeared to the twelve. Now, we all know that Judas is dead at this point. I think he's just grabbing a title for the 12. He appeared to the 11, but they're here referred to as a group of 12. You know, it's amazing. Just put yourself back on that first Easter morning. Put yourself back in the evening of that Easter morning. Jesus Christ had been risen from the grave. The women had seen him that we read in John 20. But it then says this in Mark 16, 14, that he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were were reclining at the table and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of hearts. Imagine in the shoes or the sandals of those eleven. And they're wondering and they're bewildered and they're weeping and they're hearing testimony that he had risen, but they had not seen him. And then right there it says it. In Mark 16, 14, that He appeared the 11. In fact, at another point in Luke 24, while they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a Spirit. And He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See My hands and My feet and that it is I myself touch me and see, for a a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Beloved, listen, there is a testimony of Scripture, but there is overwhelming testimony of these eyewitnesses. Here he appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the twelve. In fact, look back, if you will, just in Acts, just for a moment. In Acts chapter 1, verse 22, it says there that beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. You know that one of the credentials of the apostles was that they had to see the risen Christ from the dead. And so when we talk about these eyewitness accounts, that was the very genuine marks of their eyewitness testimony. In fact, these men were reliable eyewitnesses to the most remarkable event in history. So you got the testimony of Peter, the testimony of the twelve, and then the third one, it's somewhat... Maybe I shouldn't say that, but I'm smiling. It's somewhat humorous. Look back at 1 Corinthians just for a second. If anybody's doubting the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 6, it says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at, what? One time, most of them, or most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus Christ appeared just two decades later to more than 500 people at one time. Now, if anybody doubted when Paul wrote this, maybe just 20 years after the fact, he could have said, oh yeah, there's so-and-so. Just, just go talk to him. Just go talk to him and go, go talk to this family. In fact, that family was there. And this family was there, and this family was there. And that, oh, there's a few that have fallen asleep. There's a few that, um, that's not a reference to falling asleep in church. There's a few that fell asleep in soul death, we call it. They weren't there. He goes, but he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. I mean, let me just ask you. We have some lawyers in our midst this morning. What would happen if you just had the testimony of two to witness a crime? Oh, I, I, I saw him. I saw him do this. And then another one Korok, comes in and, and gives the same story. I, I, I was at that and I, I saw him do this. And then a third comes in. And imagine you're beginning to put your defense together for a crime or whatever, the prosecutor, and you're putting it together and 10 come in and say the same thing. And then all of a sudden you're getting a little tired, but there's 10 more in the waiting room that want to give testimony. And then after they've seen 50, then they finally look at each other and they say, well, then this is so obvious. And then they say, oh, there's hundreds more outside who all saw the same thing. Listen, there is irrefutable witness and testimony given. Jesus Christ himself for a period of over 40 days was physically seen by over 500 brethren at, One time. But there's a fourth there in the text. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to five hundred. I love this one. Number four, he appeared to James. Do you see it there? In verse seven, he appeared to James. Now there's a question. There's different James in the word of God. But we believe and most believe that this is James, the half brother of Jesus Christ. This is James, the one who wrote for us the epistle that we've already studied, the book of James. This is James, the very, very prominent leader of Acts chapter 15, the one who clarified truth. This is James, according to Galatians chapter 2, who is the pillar of the church. But this is James, the half-brother of our Lord, who was embarrassed about his brother. In fact, when you go to John's Gospel in chapter 7 and in verse 5, none of the brothers believed on him. In fact, his whole family at one point thought something was wrong. But it says in John's Gospel in 7.5 that not one of them believed. But somehow afterward, after the resurrection, James was willing to die for Jesus. In fact, the testimony of church history is that the Sanhedrin stoned James to death for his faith in his half-brother. Now, you have to ask this question. What would it take for a person to die willingly for the belief that one of his family members is God? Listen, the only reasonable explanation is It's that Jesus appeared to him alive from the dead and it transformed his life to the point where he becomes a prominent leader, to the point where he's a pillar of the church, to the point when a decision needed to be made in that old commercial they used to have when I was growing up when E.F. Hutton speaks and everybody turned to him. In that council, they all turned to James and he cleared truth. Listen, I'm telling you, this brother, this half-brother, who at one point was not believing, the only difference you can make is in Acts 14, he's gathered in the upper room and he's there found praying with the other brothers. He was transformed by the resurrection. Beloved, you hold in your hand the Scripture. You hold in your hand the scripture that testify of his resurrection. But there's a fifth appearance. It's to the apostles. You see that there in verse 7. He appeared, it says, to all the apostles. And I think this is just further testimony. He appeared to the 11. Now he appeared to all the apostles. John 20, 20. He showed them both his hands and his side, and his disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. The others were therefore saying to him, We have seen the Lord. Remember, but Thomas said, But unless I see his hands and imprint of his nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. But it says there in John 20, eight days later, Jesus came through the door and he said this, reach here your finger and see my hands and, re- or, and, see, and reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. Listen, he appeared to the 11. He appeared here to all the apostles. He appeared to Peter, he appeared to the 12, he appeared to 500, he appeared to James, he appeared to all of the apostles. And the sixth and final testimony is this, verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. What a precious truth. He appeared to the apostle Paul. He said in verse 9, I'm the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But he is what he is by the grace of God. But he appeared beloved to Paul. And I think again, it's the writer here. It's the one who we believe from church history would have his head severed on the Ignatian way. This was the one who had persecuted believers. This is the one who had held coats at people stoning. This was the one who went from city to city and threw believers in jail. This was the one who saw the resurrected Christ. Now what's interesting with Paul is Paul's appearance or Christ's appearance to Paul was not post-resurrection, was it? Remember we talked to that in Acts 1, 3, over 40 days and so forth. That's post-resurrection. Paul encountered the living Christ Post ascension, post ascension, because it says this in Acts nine one, Paul or at that point Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the and murder against the disciples of the Lord. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And we know that the rest changed, did it not? Saul turned into Paul and Paul turned into one of the greatest preachers and writers of all of the New Testament. Willing to risk and spend his life for the one who gave his life for him. And so he appeared to Paul. In fact, look back in 1 Corinthians 9, just for a second. First Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9.1, it says there, he says, am I not free? He says, am I not an apostle? And now he said, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So beloved, here's the testimony of the scripture. Here secondly is the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And then thirdly, just briefly look back Third, there's a testimony of what I call the preached message. The third testimony is the preached message. I like how Paul caps this. He says, Whether then, in verse 11, it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I love that. And whether it's I or the apostles or the 11 or whoever else who have written here, it is, it is the preached message and you believed. In other words, he's capturing here that the last testimony of Christ's resurrection was the, was the event and the message that every apostle, every prophet, and every pastor has preached. In fact, look back up at 1 Corinthians 15.1. He said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received In which you stand. He's preached this message to them. They've already received it. And they stand in it. So here are three irrefutable testimonies. That demonstrate the validity of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Listen in a Jewish court of law. The presence of just two or three witnesses. Was mandatory. To prove the veracity of an event. And here is overwhelming proof of our Lord's resurrection from the grave. But listen, that's not even really Paul's focus. (laughs) Let let me explain that. When, When you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is not only the verification. Of his resurrection from the grave. But that's not Paul's primary point here. His point would be. That because of his resurrection from the dead. It guarantees your resurrection from the dead. In other words his resurrection is the promise of your resurrection. In fact glance down just at verse 15. He's speaking of our resurrection. He says, if, he says, we are even found to be re- misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He had raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Here's the point. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But he goes on to say that obviously he was raised from the dead. In fact, glance down at verse 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. In other words, he opens up with an apologetic on the person of Christ Built off the foundation that he's trying to bolster your faith in the resurrection. His resurrection guarantees your resurrection. In fact, look, look down at verse 42. 15, 42. He said, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. He said, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. He's bolstering the truth of our own resurrected body based on the verification of His. In fact, glance down at verse fifty. must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is in the law, is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you've placed your faith in Christ, as sure as he rose from the dead, you will rise at the second coming of Christ and you will be changed in the twinkling of an eye and that perishable body that you now find yourself in will put on the imperishable Right, That mortal will then put on immortality. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Every pain you've had, every child you've lost, every baby that's lost in the womb will get a resurrected body. This is the hope of our salvation, is it not? In fact, is this not why do you, you get it in the flow of the text? Verse 58, look at it there. He says, therefore, in light of the resurrection truth, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Beloved, listen, in light of the resurrection, he says, stand strong. In light of the resurrection, Grace Church of the Valley never move from the gospel that was preached in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Never move from the hope of the resurrection. Never move from the scriptures that has taught us the plan of salvation. He says, in light of the resurrection, you need to be steadfast. You need to hold your ground. You need to stay strong. And then he tells us there, do you see it? He says, be immovable. In other words, be immovable in your convictions. Be immovable in the doctrine of the resurrection. Be immovable in the gospel that's been proclaimed. I mean, in a day and age, certainly with, the, with politics that are before us and on the front page of every paper and website and every TV show and a vacillating country in which we live, he says in light of the resurrection, don't change at all. In light of the resurrection, I want you to stand. In light of the resurrection, I want you to be immovable. Young people who are in here, young people who are looking to be pure until married, you stay strong. You don't ever move from your moral position. You don't ever move from the scriptures that's been revealed. Family is family. It's divine, designed by God. You stay strong in light of the resurrection. He says here, you be immovable. You be steadfast. And then how about this phrase? He says, always abounding what? In the work of the Lord. Abound in the work of the Lord. Maybe some of you have been hurt by people. Maybe some of you have been hurt by a church. Maybe you've come from a place where you've been a deacon or an elder or a pastor or a missionary. And after a while, you lose heart. Listen, here's the hope of of our motivation. You're always abounding in the work of the Lord. You say, well, why? There's the last phrase. Because your labor is not in what? vain it's not wasted every time every conversation you've had every sermon you've preached every person you've counseled every person you've given you know the seed of truth to you abound in that work because of the hope of the resurrection that nothing you ever do is wasted nothing you ever do is ever in vain this is our great hope see the Lord wants you to be renewed And the greatest thing to renew us is to come back to the gospel, come back to the person of Christ, to recognize that His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And because of His hope of the resurrection, then you realize that your labor, your hardship, your toil, your sweat, your tears is never in vain. It's worth it all. It's worth it all. And maybe it is that this truth needs to renew some of you. Because it can be really hard serving the Lord. It can be really discouraging at times serving the Lord. And here is this great hope always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, that your labor never, ever, 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 ever is in vain. That He's going to take it and use it and accomplish it for His glory. Listen, if you've never met the Savior, here it is in Romans ten nine. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him, what? From the dead, you shall be saved. You have to believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You have to believe in his resurrection from the grave and you shall be saved. And of course, if he's Lord, then our life ought to be underneath his life. He is king, he is Lord, and we should worship him for that. Amen?